This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Jenny, also of the Reading Envy Podcast, with a cold and my two dogs in the room. (laughs) (laughs) It should be be an interesting day. (laughs) It's going to be okay. We're going to talk new releases, recent arrivals, and we've got a big list because we haven't done a show in apparently three months. Is that right? It's been three months since my last confession. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've got a lot of sins on the list here. Many, many books that we haven't read yet. Absolutely. Um, So uh, let's start with the paper books that came in. All right. Um, I've I've got two hardcovers from Tor. Um, and both are sequels. One is called The Architect of Eons, which is part of the Count to a Trillion, I want to say, trilogy by John C. Wright. And uh, that came in. And also uh, another sequel. I think this is the second book uh, by Marie Brennan in the Memoirs of Lady Trent series. And that one is called The Voyage of the Basilisk. And... Uh, I want to say a little bit more about this one because, uh, The Voyage of the Basilisk, because like the first book in this series, it is beautifully illustrated inside. And, uh, also the text, which, you know, it's, you don't usually say anything about the text unless it's, it's, uh, I don't know, uh, too small or it's copy edited badly or anything like that. But the text in here is blue, which I thought was really nice. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you're reading through it and you say, oh, it's blue. Does that affect how you read, you know, are you feeling like sort of ocean-y? Because this is sort of the ocean version. Uh, this is sort of the Voyage of the Beagle version of, uh, of, you know, a fantasy. I, I thought it was really, it just looks really, really pretty book. Yeah, but even just the cover is beautiful. I know, isn't it? It's, I think it makes a big difference. I don't know. Well, we were talking briefly before the podcast started about uh, cover art. <laughs> yeah, because I was looking through the recent um, releases in Audible, and there's so many books with authors I don't recognize, but really bad covers. And I would never even maybe look at the book itself. I know that's awful, but I have a big bias visually, I think. Me too. <laughs> I, I want it to be. I want it to be elegant and pretty and also... Um, this, the other thing is, is if you listen to how kids interact with books, I think adults do the same thing. They just, they, they don't talk about it as much that they're, they're maybe shyer about it. But the way kids talk about with books is like, I'm looking for one with a spaceship on the cover, right? <laughs> but it also has to be a pretty spaceship. Yeah. Right. Cause if it's, if it's an ugly cover, um, you don't, you'll just move on until you find a nice cover. Right. And if you're using fonts and graphic design techniques from the eighties, it's going to make me think your book is not very relevant either. I don't know. No. I mean, it could go for the vintage look even, but, but it has to, it has to sort of work. It has to, uh, it has slap, to be an intention. Ass together. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, that, I mean, it's hard. I, I, I taught myself, I'm not saying I'm the greatest uh, composer of art, <laughs> like sort of covers and stuff like that. But I, I taught myself, and it took a long time before I was sort of satisfied with any of the stuff I put together. Well, and I'm not even thinking I'm particularly good. But yeah, Even using of, a decent stock photo would be better than, I don't know, I don't know. bad art. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a big stock photo <laughs> fan either. I um, know that a lot of books use them, and, and it's not great, but at least it's composed visually. You know, one of the one of the ones I saw uh, while I was looking through, and we were talking about this, is uh, that this is a good idea. One one of the lessons I would say is first thing you do you don't ever do is mix your fonts, mm-hmm. right? So you don't have one kind of font uh, or I should say, don't mix your serifs. So you can have two kinds of fonts on it. Like if you want to have the author and the title and the narrator, that's fine. You can have two kinds of fonts, but you can't have both with serifs. 
one has to be either they're all the same font or one has to be uh, uh, sans serif without serifs, right? The little cute cutie things. That's one little thing to make it not look like it's it's put together by a five year old, right? Yeah. The other, the other thing is to, uh, use classic portraiture art, or not portraiture art, just classic art that's in the public domain. So I saw somebody had done, you know, the time machine, um, and they had taken a very famous classic painting that is a beautiful painting, uh, and just use that as their art. It's not really appropriate completely for the story. But it looks beautiful, so at least there's that, right? There's right, and I think not doing anything to muddy it up. So whether yeah. that's overly texturizing the font or putting too many layers on the image, it doesn't, mm-hmm. it's not going to pop after that. It's just going to kind of disappear into the same obscurity of <laughs> those other books. Indeed. I do also have a print book that came in from Grey Sun Press, mm-hmm. uh, Class M Exile by Raven Oak. Uh, Class mm. M planet in the middle of nowhere named Bazar. Dust, dust, and more dust. Unless you circle around to the more habitable region, you'd be stuck without a ship to anywhere. So it's um. a very highly populated planet. And it's a very thin book, but it looks like it's a kind of like a military science fiction type yeah, novel. That, that, that term, Class M, comes from Star Trek. Oh, does it? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it means like Earth-like planet, I think. My lack of Star Trek knowledge is showing. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I've, I've also uh, got in three, um, three graphic novels from uh, Self-Made Hero, which is a... Uh, I guess a small press of comics and they're all by the same artist, uh, who's named I N J Kulbard, I think is, is his, uh, name. Yeah. I N J. Um, and then it, it's, they're just adaptations of classic HP Lovecraft stories. So once the shadow of time, uh, the chase, the case of Charles Dexter Ward and the dream quest of unknown Kadath. And I hadn't heard of these before, but as soon as I uh, I spotted them, I'm like, wow, full-length graphic novel adaptations of H.P. Lovecraft. i got to get those. So I'm excited about that because I just didn't know they existed. And I think it, because uh, if you're with a small publisher, it's often very difficult to get any sort of publicity. Um I even even though I haven't read these yet, I don't know much about them. I gotta say they exist because yeah. <laughs> only, the only uh, I mean, there's so many comics and and they don't get like regular bookstore distribution in the way that you know that there's there's not as much as much promotion for them. So yeah, it's harder to just stumble across them. It is very difficult. Be out there looking for them, I think. Mm -hmm. And the covers, I mean, if you're just going through Amazon, you wouldn't necessarily know that it was a graphic novel because it, it, the cover is just, you know, it says the shadow of time and it's got Lovecraft, Kublard. You don't know from looking at it if they don't specifically say this is a graphic novel adaptation that it isn't just another one of the 50, uh, public domain, you know. Yeah. The print-on-demand copies of this book with a different cover. Huh. Sounds good. We're, we're moving into digital. Is that right? Or do we have some... Uh, some just the rest of our audio. Discs? Oh, yeah. No, some of these still come in discs. The Brilliance Audio ones do. Okay. Everything else seems to be digital these days. And our first category is... Horror. And so the first one, um, we were actually contacted by the publisher for this one. It's The Scarlet Gospels by Clive Barker, narrated by John Lee from Macmillan Audio. Mm. Um, came out in May. The Scarlet Gospels takes readers back many years to the early days of two of Barker's most iconic characters in a battle of good and evil as old as time. The long-beleaguered detective Harry Damore, investigator of all supernatural, magical, and malevolent crimes, 
faces off against his formidable and intensely evil rival, Pinhead, the Priest of Hell. Hmm. Did you I, uh, watch any of those Clive Barker movies? No, have you? Like, give me a name uh, of one. Uh, there's well, that Pinhead is 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 one of the bad guys. Uh, I'm not I'm not sure what the uh, Hellraiser, I guess, is the name of the, oh, okay. the movies. Um, I watched one the other day, and I didn't know it was by based on a Clive Barker story. Huh. And I I was really disliking it, and then. Uh, I, I finished watching it and then I started reading the Wikipedia entry. I'm like, oh, it's based on a Clive Barker short story. Actually, I like it more now. <laughs> <laughs> and the, and the reason I didn't like it very much is I was like, this is gratuitous. It's like, it's so random, bloody body horror. Uh, it was called, uh, it was a horrible title. It's called the, it's based on, it's the title of the short story as well. It's called The Midnight Meat Train. Oh, God. <laughs> it's about like a guy who's who's uh he discovers that there's like some weird train under the city of New York that has chops up people and feeds feeds the monsters feeds the body parts to monsters that live under the city. And it's actually it's got uh, a really mainstream actor, Bradley Cooper. Really? Uh yeah, and I was like, What the what a weird movie. And then, uh, oh, it's it's Clive Barker. Oh, that makes much more sense. It, because it's a very good adaptation of a Clive Barker story. It's just not a very good <laughs> regular mainstream movie. Yeah. Because it's just too graphic. And it sort of has, like, you know, very random sort of feeling things for movie sort of language. But But if you think about, like, the way Clive Barker stuff works, it it's... Not, it's just designed to put you in the mood of, I'm so disturbed right now. <laughs> and that's what it did for me. So then I think, oh, it's effective. Therefore, it's a better movie. It's just not a movie that I'm a big fan of. Yeah. But I'm, I'm surprised. Kind of <laughs> I'm surprised Scott's going to review this because uh, I didn't know he was a body horror guy. Yeah, I don't know. He picked right up on it, though. Mm. We'll see what he has to say about it. Yeah. Clive Barker's he's scary. Hmm. Okay, uh we're moving to uh Audio Realms, who we haven't had a book in to review by for a while. Yeah. But um I guess I was tweeting uh some of their new releases or something and they said, Oh hey, wanna review some of this? Mm-hmm. Um and it's a is this a sequel book? Is that what this is? Limbus Inc. book <laughs> I guess maybe it is. Yeah, it does it say at the bottom it continues the story. But it's I had heard the first one. It's a shared world anthology. Okay. Uh, so okay. that makes sense. So it's uh it's got authors Jonathan Mayberry, Joe R. Lansdale, Gary A. Brownback, uh Joe McKinney and Harry Shannon and Brett J. Talley. Uh 10 hours, 42 minutes. That's a pretty decent sized collection. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see just what the Limbus world is about. How lucky do you feel? That question echoed through the world's underground, scrawled on bathroom walls, spray painted across subway exits, written on paper that fluttered through bleak side streets in the wind, uh, in the winter wind, printed on cheap business cards, tacked to corkboard displays in darkened hallways, but always beneath one name, Limbus. Matthew Sellers revealed the truth of the Limbus Inc. to the world, and in his tales of time travelers, intergalactic beings, and human sacrifice, he thought he had told it all, but the story of the shadowy employment agency that operates on the edge of the abyss, always finding the perfect person for the job, no matter what the cost, had only begun. Okay, so it's it's... I guess the idea is you get a job working. Uh, it's an employment agency called Limbus. Get a job working for them, and then the author just decides what horrible things will happen to its characters. Yeah. That sounds kind of creepy and kind of appropriate, given the terrible economy and people trying to uh, get jobs. <laughs> They'll have to take whatever job they can get, including ones that are quite horrible. Yeah, it sounds like there's... Some space for creativity there. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about The Monster Men, 
mm-hmm. which uh, is by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And it's narrated by David Stifel, who is a podcaster who's podcasting all of the public domain uh, stories of novels, anyways, of Edgar Rice Burroughs. The Monster Man is not one I'd heard of until um, I saw that he had been doing it. But it's it's a pretty cool book. Um, six hours long. It's just been released on Audible. And uh, we, we're doing a show on it so that you can hear that upcoming. But uh, it's kind of like The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells and Frankenstein, um, but done Burroughs style which means uh, machine guns <laughs> and uh, pirates. Jungles. And <laughs> jungles, yeah. It's set, set in um, Indonesia. And um, it's got, uh, it's got like a rich, a rich Cornell scientist uh, who goes off to create, uh, he's creating a race of humans because nobody's good enough for his daughter. He's going to create the perfect man for his daughter. <laughs> Um, and he's making them, but they're all monsters so far, except for number 13, which finally comes out right. And, uh, it's, it's got, it was published under the name, the man without a soul when it was the first published because, uh, well, maybe, maybe I'll just let you get the book because I, I thought it was really fun. I, I'm, I'm not a big series guy, but I like every time Burroughs starts a book. You know, this one didn't turn into a series, but whenever he does a book, he always comes up with a bunch of cool ideas. And this one's, it's not as good as, you know, A Princess of Mars, but it's fun. We had fun talking about it. So, oh, so did you talk about it with the narrator? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. that's good. Yeah, he's he's uh, become sort of a Burroughs expert. Wow. Because he really, you know, there's a lot to, a lot of pronunciation of, you know, sort of made up names and words and We've hmm. read, I think, a lot of the biographies of Burroughs, and uh, it, because he's done so many books now, he's done like ten, ten Burroughs novels or something like that. Wow. Uh, he just knows everything about Burroughs, and he's a great narrator too. Hmm. David Stifle. And it's only six hours. That's Jesse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly a Jesse. Jurassic Park? Didn't this come out before? Yeah, we don't even have to really talk about it much, except to say that they did a new recording because it's the 25th anniversary of the novel, and so it's narrated by Scott Brick this time around. Okay. That's kind of fun. Yeah. Um, it, I think I read it. I, I don't remember because it's sort of fused with the movie. Yeah. I know um, I've never actually read it, but, but I've never seen the movie either. <laughs> oh, no. Well... You're going to have a chance again, because I was noticing um, they really are pumping it, right? Like, the the new one that's coming out, um, Jurassic World, I think it's called. Yeah, it's already it's out. Like it did, Lego, like, it did $500 Park million dollars opening what? weekend, something like that. It's um, crazy popular. It's a summer movie. Absolutely. And it's in 3D, too, so... Oh, are super excited about. Oh, maybe not 3D. The IMAX. Version. I think I'm done with 3D. I, I went to see the Mad Max, the Mad Max movie in 3D because I thought, you know, if you're gonna see Mad Max, you should see it on the big screen. You should see mm-hmm. it in 3D. We, we even paid like the VIP, which turns out it just allows you to buy drinks. <laughs> <laughs> you have bigger seats and like you can order appetizers and stuff while you're uh-huh. in. The, it, it's like a restaurant or. Something. That's funny. People doing shots while you watch them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, it was okay to have it in 3D. It just, it, it didn't really add anything to it for me. Mm. I can't, I don't know. I just get headaches. Like my eyes won't focus right for it. So I never enjoy 3D. Yeah. Uh, it's a gimmick. Yeah. Uh, right. This next one looks totally up my alley. I know. So you should take it. <laughs> All right. I'll, t- I'll tell you about it. It's called Vampire Horror with an exclamation point. And it's got stories by M.R. James, John Polidori, that's Dr. John Polidori, uh, F. Marion Crawford, Bill Wallace. I've not heard of Bill Wallace. And it's read by Anthony Heald. Is that head or Heald? I think it's Heald. Okay. It's the guy from Buffy. 
librarian. Isn't oh, okay. It? Isn't that the same? Uh, I think it's him. Well, there's a there's a guy named Heald who was in Star Wars as well, who's a narrator. Hmm. John Telfer, Cornelius Garrett. Yeah, and Bill and, Wallace is another one of the readers. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. Okay, so I can tell you probably which stories are in. Oh, maybe not. The M.R. James, um, he's he's the British country. Uh, he's the British country. Um, what what am I saying? English countryside sort of churchyard monster ghost story guy. Well, yeah, because we recently ghost. had a ghost story anthology of his. I thought. Mm-hmm. And John Polidori, he's really cool. You heard of him? Mm-mm. Okay, so remember uh, uh, Shelley, Mary Shelley? Yeah. Mary Shelley and Lord Byron and Percy Shelley uh, were in a uh, in a Swiss uh, mansion in the Alps uh, one summer. Uh, I guess in 1815 or something like that. Um, and they told ghost stories, uh, to each other. Cool. But there, was a, there was a, yeah, and it's really cool. And the thing is, is there was another guy there, Dr. John Polidori, who huh. was, who was like the physician for Byron. Because Byron, uh, had various skills, I guess. Yeah. And he wanted he he wanted to prove that he was just as cool as everybody else there, um, and so they all sat down after reading from ghost story books like uh, aloud, doing narration to each other from a book of ghost stories. They all said, "Oh, let's all write ghost stories. Um, see so who can come up with the best ghost story." And Mary Shelley won. <laughs> but um, uh, John Polidori, he he actually kind of won too because he invented the first basically vampire story called the vampire V A M P Y R E. Um, it comes before, uh, well, well before Bram Stoker and it's, it's an interesting story, but, um, the kind of even more interesting thing is he kind of resented, um, Byron and it seems that, the character, uh, the vampire, is actually based on Byron. It's sort of a dig at Byron, which is really funny. Um, so yeah, the monster is called Lord Ruthven hmm. in that story, and he he's kind of um, he's kind of uh, goes around, you know, ravishing ladies, and he's he's got there's a sort of a a character who, who plays Polidori in it as well. Um, so it's it's kind of like a, a autobiographical uh, fantasy horror story, which is fun. I'm um, noticing that it says that there is atmospheric music with these two. Mm. <laughs> well, if it's overlaid over the whole thing, then I don't want to hear it. Yeah, but it's interesting to see how they do it. <laughs> if it's just you know interstitial between stories, um, it might be okay. Um, yeah, that's kind of scary though, because some pi- some people think they can just suddenly reinvent audiobooks. Say, you know what it's missing is sound effects and, <laughs> and <laughs> music to listen to. And I'm hearing an fun. organ. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell me how 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 to feel about this. <laughs> acting is what I would say. Yeah. So that yeah, that's that one's open for. Uh, narration? Hmm. Or, uh, open for review, I mean. Okay, well, maybe, maybe I'll have a listen to that one. Well, our next category is your favorite. Post-apocalyptic, dystopia, destruction, disaster, all the good D words. <laughs> That's what I called it. Yeah? Um, um, have you heard of Survivors, the series? Nope. Okay. Uh, Terry Nation, I, I'll do this one too, sorry. Um, Terry Nation is uh, was a uh, British writer, most famous for creating the Daleks on Doctor Who, which are kind of monster. And um, he also created a bunch of other television shows, including uh, Blake Seven, which is uh, another sort of cult British science fiction show. It's kind of like uh, 
uh, Robin Hood meets Star Trek in space um, in a dystopian future. You, you'd probably really like the first episode, Jenny, because it's 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 like a total dystopia uh, government future. So these are done as episodes. Well, basically, Terry Nation is known as a TV writer, hmm. but in the UK, uh, writers tend to get a lot more credit for whatever's created on television than they do in North America. So, you know, everybody knows House. Who wrote House? You know, the House MD. <laughs> Nobody knows, right? Um, writers tend to not get any credit on television shows. But in the UK, what would happen is somebody would either create a TV sh- series and then write the books uh, about it, or they would write the book and then the TV series would be created and the uh, writer would get, you know, would get writing credit on the TV show. Um, so Terry Nation wrote, I would guess, this book after writing the TV show and creating the TV show called Survivors, which is a very cool uh, uh, post-apocalyptic science fiction story. Hmm. Why, why don't you read through the first paragraph and see what you think? Because it yeah. sounds totally like what something you'd like. A virus has wiped out 95% of the world's population in just a few weeks, leaving the remaining 5% to stay alive in a world devoid of the most basic amenities, electricity, transport, and medicine. The few survivors of the human race are forced to fall back on the most primitive skills in order to live and reestablish some semblance of law and order. Okay, so that premise sounds like a lot of other things. Totally, right? <laughs> um, but this came out in the 70s before a lot of other things. Uh, um, and uh, there's actually two. They did a, a reboot of the series a few years ago. And it's it's very much like The Walking Dead, but there's no zombies, right? All the monsters are humans. And it's, you know, the power struggles and, you know, how do you trust somebody you meet? You know, who's a stranger? Um, how do you know uh, who to listen to when the government's gone? Because there's a, you know, one one minister is is left. She's running a community. Who elected her? Right. right. Well, see how it goes. But um, sort of the it's it's all the fun stuff we like about dystopian storytelling Um are not dystopian, I guess, post-apocalyptic storytelling, because you get to reboot society and sort of see what values come out. Yeah, that's my favorite part of it, usually. Me too. Unless it's going to be all, like, men, you know, making little bands of military groups, and then I'm like, okay, that's not exciting. (laughs) (laughs) I want to see things that happen that are different than that. (laughs) Uh, This is pretty good. This is pretty good. I've not read the book, but I I did watch the show, and Mm. um, I've read other books by Terra Nation and it's yes. um, it's, yeah, it's I mean it's not like amazing prose style but he really has a dramatic uh, you want to say a visual writer you know he's very good at giving you uh, what's going on you can see it mm. well and I always picture all these post-apocalyptic worlds as existing simultaneously they just don't know about each other <laughs> yeah like right. remember what was the novel about the grass that also took place in the uk the death of grass the death yeah. of grass so you could have those people journeying to the north <laughs> while these people try to save this guy's ancestral home <laughs> mm-hmm. i just always picture them existing at i the was same thinking time. about that book that's such a good book we did we did that a long time ago but i yeah i think about that book a lot i do the too yes and there's but, another you know, book on here that will relate to that. So, oh, yeah, maybe can I, we just skip about it? it. Yeah, but uh, I was thinking about it in relation to I'm reading um, that uh, I finished that book on uh, the around the world in six glasses. No, history oh. of the world in six glasses. Mm-hmm. And uh, now I'm doing the one based on food by the same author, Tom Standage, mm-hmm. and uh, he's talking about you know the increase uh, size of corn. You know kernels and and all that, and it we are so dependent on on wheat and uh, corn and millet and all those right. things. If if we suddenly had those things, you know, get a rust and they all died, we would all die, uh, and we'd be back to uh, hunting and gathering, and not much not much gathering. 
Right. It always bothers me in post-apocalyptic novels when people don't address how people are eating because mm-hmm. like even on the road, which is like this classic post-apocalyptic novel at this point, the father and son live off of canned food that they scavenge. And I'm like, well, yeah. okay. I mean, that's We've seen that a million times, but that's only going to last for so long. I mean, that can't be your long-term plan. Um, and then this book that everyone loves that I'm the only one who didn't seem to love the station 11 they have this symphony that travels around and does Shakespeare plays. They're not even really a symphony, but they never talk about how they eat. And everyone, everyone that I bring this up to says, well, they probably are just hunting deer in the woods. I'm like, Oh, okay. But how many deer are in the woods? (laughs) I mean, you know, Uh, not, not enough. And you know, if, if the population suddenly had to revert to, Eating deer in the woods, there would be no deer in the woods. That's exactly. That's that's the funny thing is, you know, in in the UK, probably probably still today, you know, the poachers, no, they weren't allowed to have the king's deer. You know, they weren't allowed to. All the deer in the forest belonged to the king. This is the left. This is like the end of a of a of a legacy of let they killed every kind of animal that lived, and and then they said, you know what, let's keep some. And so they put a high price on poaching, right? They said, you know, if you get caught poaching, you're going to get executed. And that is that is a terrible cost, but it's a way of preventing the extinction of the deer. Right, but before, when humanity was largely in the hunting and gathering mode, that was possible because we hadn't pushed all the animals out through development. And, That's right. But now, now that we have... I mean, you can't just say, well, we'll just go back to hunting and gathering. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. (laughs) No. The animals aren't going to be there. I mean, the fish, for instance, there are entire societies that used to to depend on fish that no longer exist, that they can't have access to. On the other hand, Danny, they did deal with it in the road. The other solution (laughs) is cannibalism. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. How sustainable is that if you only have 5% of your population (laughs) No, it's, it's not very sustainable. But So this brings us to this other book that I'm jumping to, and we can go okay. back to the others. And it's The Water Knife by Paolo Bacigalupi, mm-hmm. or Bacigalupi, um, narrated by Almarie Guerra. Guerra. And it's uh, in the American Southwest, Nevada, Arizona, and California, a skirmish for dwindling shares of the Colorado River. So it's about water. It's about the, our presence, right? Yeah, basically. Into the fray steps Angel Velasquez, detective, leg breaker, assassin, and spy, a Las Vegas water knife. Angel cuts water for his boss, Catherine Case, ensuring that her lush, luxurious arcology developments can bloom in the desert so the rich can stay wet while the poor get nothing but dust. I won't read the whole description. It goes on mm. for a long time, but it's really interesting. I've been reading a lot of reviews of this book um, mm-hmm. and people who live on the West coast are like, this is already the truth. This is already mm-hmm. how things are. Mm-hmm. We do not have water. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, so I think Paolo Bacigalupi, if that's how you say it, he's so good at this very, very, very near future. And it's always um, environmental related. Mm-hmm. Which is very, it's a, mo- a lot more realistic than maybe an atomic bomb would be at this point for our society. Yeah. It's, can't, we, we already, we've already played out the atomic bomb scenarios and. Yeah. That's done. But. And so now the, Yeah, things are running out. Totally. It's, it's a real issue and it, <laughs> unlike a lot of the issues that come up, this one is not solvable by just you know, changing one policy because there's a ton of people and there's a ton of products that depend on water and they're not getting it. And the water is not in the ground anymore. So it's not like you can make it start producing again. And even if it suddenly started raining all summer, right? It's still (laughs) not going to do it because it takes, uh, you know, centuries for the, the ground to soak up that, water and get it back into the aquifer yeah i heard like 100 years minimum to get yeah. the water supply in like the los angeles area back to where it should be yeah that's an awful lot of time yeah and i, I, I mean i worry because i think uh, 
they're going to come up and take uh, our rivers away, which is a problem. Uh, but also, uh, I worry because I think it means a lot of people have to move when the Dust Bowl happens again. Right. Uh, people have to go somewhere, and that is always difficult for everybody. Mm. So they might it's all like be moving one. to North Carolina and South Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> and up to uh, Seattle and Vancouver. I don't know. You know, a funny thing happened here a few years ago where they'd done so well in getting people to stop using water mm-hmm. that they had to backtrack because really what happens is half of the area uses the water from the rivers and the lakes and whatever, but then it's their recycled wastewater that other people end up with. And so because the first group of people had cut back on water consumption, there wasn't enough for the second group of people. It's Mm. just kind of funny. Yeah. So it's such a complicated thing. It's not just the amount of water total, but where it gets directed and how it gets processed and... I bet all those people didn't know that they were drinking and using recycled water. <laughs> no, probably not. Now they do. <laughs> you know, um, Dr. Blood Money is uh, a great book uh, that's on the list here by yeah. uh, Philip K. Dick, read by Phil Giganti. Marissa's going to do the uh, review on that. And um, it's it's a post-apocalyptic story. And it's a nuclear war story, but it's also sort of a quest. And it's also, um, it's also kind of his, yeah, as it says, the, a comic version of, uh, Dr. Strangelove. Yeah, it sounds uh, funny. <laughs> it is, it is funny. And it, it's, it's also strange. Um, and it's about psychology and psychiatry as well as all of that. Um, it's, it's very, um, it's very interesting to read a Philip K. Dick story like this. And I, I think, you know, if you haven't read it, you definitely should. I did, I, I don't know if we're going to do it. You know, Marissa and I and Paul have been going through Philip K. Dick uh, novels huh. as sort of a semi part of the series of SFF audio podcasts. And, um, I've read Dr. Blood Money already. So I, I wonder if we're going to do that one soon because Marissa's doing it. Hmm. Because I would like to do it, but it, I only read it like maybe five years ago, and that almost feels like not enough time to <laughs> come soon. back to it. <laughs> yeah, not quite. I mean, it's not that it's too soon, but it, it just, you know, give me another nine months or something. Yeah. Well, because, there's plenty um, to choose from. <laughs> that's right. There's so much to listen to. Yeah. Uh, also on the list is The Gold Coast. Um, that's part of the... Three California's trilogy, which we did as the first book of, right? We did the third, right? Oh yeah, you're right. We did the so third. Going so backwards, two, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, the, this, the Gold Coast, is that the one that's um, is that the cyberpunk one? Uh, I don't really know, but I know this one's much more dystopian. It says descent into the shadowy underground of industrial terrorism. Yeah, I think, not, I think maybe the first. Fun. Oh, okay. I, this um, one sounds one the, more interesting to me than the one we we read. I I really liked <laughs> the one we did. Uh, don't you think we had a good show out of that? We had a great show out of it, but there's not much to the novel itself. It's a pretty it's a pretty little happening book, but I I really yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah, so I'm think, glad they're doing more of them. Yeah, yeah. Um. But I'd be here. I'm interested to hear what you think of this because I I heard Luke re- do a review of this as well. Yeah, I think I think he reviewed um, the Gold Coast as well as uh, the first the first book in the series. I'll have to go back and listen to that one. They're not really a series though, right? They're sort of three uh, right. three uh, triptych. Yes, yeah, so you can read them in any order. I don't, I don't think they're consecutive. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's California again, right? That's California again. Another vision know? of the future. Orange County. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's go back to Find Me, though, because I've read this book, and so I'm okay. going to talk about it a little, because it just came out in audio. It's uh, written by Laura Vandenberg, who I only knew because she wrote short stories, like literary, more literary stuff. Um, so this is her first kind of trip into dystopia. Uh, I'll just read the description. Things I Will Never Forget. 
my name, my made-up birthday, the dark of the hospital at night, my mother's face when she was young, things other people will forget, where they come from, how old they are, the faces of the people they love, the right words for bowl and sunshine, what is a beginning and what is an end. Joy spends her days working the graveyard shift at a store outside Boston and nursing an addiction to cough syrup, an attempt to suppress her troubled past. But when a sickness that begins with silver blisters and memory loss and ends with death sweeps the country, Joy, for the first time in her life, seems to have an advantage. She is immune. So this is interesting because it's kind of like the opposite of the types of novels we were talking about earlier, where, you know, it's all about the world and what happens in the mm-hmm. world. And this one's very much more one person, person. Yeah. and their emotions and their um, thoughts. And you never really know if what she's experiencing is true. Like, I mm-hmm. never felt like I knew that for sure. Because <laughs> she's all, you know, inside this hospital. And so some of it's kind of memory. Some of it feels like dream. It's just a very different take on this kind of setup. It sounds uh, sounds also like it's a possible that she she's just mentally ill. You yeah, know? Exactly. exactly. Because That's silver true. blisters, I, I mean, we get all sorts of kinds of, you know, pox on our skin. They're red, they're black, they're yeah. you know, maybe green, but silver? Yeah. It sounds, it sounds <laughs> yeah. a little bit like uh, she's in denial about her reason for being in the hospital. Yeah. Did you get a sense that it was uh, one of those, you know, uh, sort of Guy de Montfaucon style, uh, am I really insane <laughs> sort of stories? Well, it's not quite that direct, but I think the reader ends up feeling that way. And I'm, I'm not sure Joy ever thinks that, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So you kind of feel like you're supposed to be reading between the lines a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I enjoyed reading it, though. There's one more in our... Uh dystopia section oh i'll take this one too (laughs) it's the end has come so it's apocalypse triptych book three and this is um, from the editors hugh howie and john joseph adams they Mm -hmm. had the end is nigh the end is now and the end has come Mm -hmm. so they're little it almost looks like a poem the end is nigh is about the match the end is now is about the conflagration. <laughs> the end has come is about what will rise from the ashes. So this is the true post-apocalyptic collection of this triptych. Um, right. It's a collection of short stories. Hugh Howie, Jamie Ford, Jonathan Mayberry again, Seanan McGuire, Nancy Kress, Carrie Vaughn, Benny Twinters, Scott Sigler. And there's just as many narrators, lots of people mm-hmm. in there. Um, so they're all different different post-apocalyptic worlds. Um, Some of them are sequels to other stories in the previous books, yes, right? That's what I'm excited about. I've only listened to the first one. I've downloaded The End Is Now, but haven't yet gotten to it. Um, so mm-hmm. now that I know that all three are out, I'm just going to dig in and get to them. Because Some of the stories in the first set, I'm hoping, continue on because they were fascinating for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um so I always think that Hugh Howie and John Joseph Adams do a great job at anthologizing. So I, 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 I'm looking forward to it. Such a fun project for them to do too. Yeah. It's good stuff. Uh, I would be um, interested to see if, if some of those get repackaged, mm. uh, the ones that are sequels and repackaged into like a short book just on their own. Yeah. Well, that's um, interesting you say that because, um, I don't know if you heard that the Margaret Atwood, you know, how she was writing a serial novel mm-hmm. and I had read some of them and then they pulled the last one and then put it back into a novel and published it recently. What? And I'm kind of like, what? <laughs> I never got to finish it as a serial. Um, and I've heard the story isn't quite the same either. So I, I'm, it's very puzzling. It must have to do something with the publishing world. Um, it was such a great experiment. I was like five, five out of six episodes in, basically. Mm. <laughs> it's annoying. Yeah, but it fit into the same category. Interesting, yeah. though. All right, we're okay. up to science fiction in space and the desert. <laughs> 
The Sevens is a novel by Neil Stephenson. Seven? Seven Neves? Seven Thins? I think it's Seven Eves. At first, for a long time, I thought it was Seven Eyes, but it it isn't. It's a V. Um, with Mariette Robinette, uh, Mary Robinette calls a narrator and Will Dameron is narrator. That's it. A coup for Mary Robinette Call. Yeah. Uh, to be, uh, on a Neil Stevenson book. 31 hours, 55 minutes. <laughs> How does he write books this big? It's amazing. This is actually shorter for him. It's not over a thousand pages. It's big. It's book. like 900 something. Uh, what would happen? If the world were ending, a catastrophic event renders the Earth a ticking time bomb. In a feverish race against the inevitable, nations around the globe band together to devise an ambitious plan to ensure the survival of humanity far beyond our atmosphere in outer space. But the complexities and unpredictability of human nature, coupled with unforeseen challenges and dangers, threaten the intrepid pioneers until only a handful of survivors remain. 5,000 years later, their progeny, seven distinct races, now three billion strong, embark on yet another audacious journey into the unknown, to an alien world utterly transformed by the cataclysm and time. (gasps) Earth. (laughs) You know, I got 100 pages in to a review copy I had, and then Uh it expired, and so I I have bought this for myself, but I haven't gone back to it yet. Um, but when I started reading it, I didn't know about the 5,000 years later part, so I hadn't gotten there yet in the novel. But I'm fascinated yeah. by that part of it in particular. 100 pages is only a 10% of the book, right? Yeah. <laughs> so they're still dealing. What happens is the the moon breaks into seven pieces mm. um, at the very beginning, and they shortly figure out that it means that no one's going to be able to live on the Earth. So they have to make a plan. And it's basically the beginning of it set in like the present day mm. just about so sounds, it's very sciencey yeah sounds good yeah uh, the next I'm not one. sure 31 hours is, is <laughs> my, my size is, how many Jessies is that yeah it's too many Jessies too many but the person reviewing it for us really works through long audiobooks I think fast, Rob so. have, he must have like a huge commute yeah I think he bikes to work if I'm not mistaken oh that'd be cool yeah all right. Uh, Nova by Margaret Fortune. Is that the one we're doing next? Yeah. Read by Georgiana Marie from Penguin mm-hmm. Audio. I hadn't heard of this book. No, me neither. Uh, it's at nine hours, so not too long. And I think you say that 3,600. Mm-hmm. That sounds strangely right. Except for there is no 3,600. Anyway. Oh. The clock activates so suddenly in my mind. My head involuntarily jerks a bit to the side. The fog vanishes, dissipated in an instant as though it never was. Memories come slotting into place, their edges sharp enough to move furrows, and suddenly I know. I know exactly who I am. My name is Leah Johansson, and I was named for a prisoner of war. Um, she lived in an internment colony. She's genetically engineered human bomb. She's hmm. created for only one purpose, to slip into the strategically placed New Soul space station and explode. <laughs> Well, that is the exact premise <laughs> of the story I talked about on on the last podcast huh. uh, called Imposter by Philip K. Dick. Except the guy didn't know he was a bomb. Sounds like she totally. knows who she is. Yeah, so that she must be the Nova. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I've, I've not heard of Margaret Fortune. I wonder if she's new. Yeah, I hadn't either. Uh, we got a reviewer for, no, no reviewer for that, so that one's open. Yep. Peter Kleins, that sounds like a familiar name. Hmm. The Fold, narrated, uh, written by Peter Kleins, narrated by Roy, Ray Porter. It's uh, 11 hours long, and it says, Step into the Fold. It's perfectly safe. The folks in Mike Erickson's small New England town would say he's just your average, everyday guy. And that's exactly how Mike likes it. Sure, the life he's chosen isn't much of a challenge to someone with his unique gifts, but he's content with his quiet and peaceful existence. That is, until an old friend presents him with an irresistible mystery, one that Mike is uniquely qualified to solve. Far out in the California desert, a team of DARPA scientists has invented a device they affectionately call the Albuquerque Door. 
using a cryptic computer equation and magnetic fields to fold dimensions. It shrinks distances so a traveler can travel hundreds of feet with a single step. The invention promises to make mankind's dreams of teleportation a reality, and the scientists insist that traveling through the door is completely safe. Yet evidence is mounting that the miraculous machine isn't quite... <laughs> yeah, I'm laughing because this is another Philip K. Dick story. <laughs> um, <laughs> I won't even finish reading it. I'll just yeah. tell you the Philip K. Dick one. Uh, it's called Prominent Author. It's a short story, and it's uh, about a guy who's testing a machine that can allow you to travel across the country by huh. just step through a you know, sort of a portal in your backyard. Um, but unlike the sort of the typical, you know, way you would think it would go, he starts noticing that there's like a little hole in the bottom and uh, turns out that, that the title. Uh, so he's actually found that it's, it goes back in time. Uh, that little hole in the in the bottom of the tunnel that he's stepping through to commute to work um, across the country and he starts visiting that the little people that live there and they start worshiping him like a god and then it turns out that he is god <laughs> and then he's he's dictated uh you know genesis he, he gets translates their language and he gets a translation of genesis for them and then there gets gives you the joke title which hmm. is prominent author author of the bible is god uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he just takes a, a sort of a typical science fiction premise and then you know does a little joke with it. But that that's like a short story. This is a full novel, so yeah. And um, I looked up I, the I author. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the horror adventure fantasy mm-hmm. one called Fourteen that we talked about maybe a year yeah. ago? It's yeah. the same guy as that. Uh-huh. So this seems kind of like his his thing. This kind of puzzle novel. Yeah. Well, uh, the end of the ending here says that it is a puzzle, right? Um, a cunningly inventive mystery involving a hero worthy of Sherlock Holmes and a terrifying final twist you'll never see coming. So it's probably not a joke story like that. Yeah. That's fun. Mm-hmm. I feel uh, like I should I sh- let you take the next one. <laughs> I think I was just going to say that. Um, I've read this. It's, it's a, it's not exactly a collection. Um, Maybe it's a collection. I don't know. It's it's. I don't think it's all fiction. But I, Scott um, had a little back and forth with Downpour about the the table of contents, and um, because Expanded Universe is a paper book that's been out for a long time, like since the eighties, I guess. Um, he just wanted to know what was in it, and so Volume One is, you know. I guess the first half of Expanded Universe and Volume 2 will be the second half of of the regular list. But it's Expanded Universe by Robert Heinlein, read by Bronson Pinchot. It's nine hours, three minutes from Blackstone. And I'll just read the little description here. Uh, Robert Heinlein has been hailed as the most forward-thinking of science fiction writers of all time. Uh, and Expanded Universe, uh, presented in two volumes, offers the perfect collection of his works to provide listeners with true insights into his uniquely creative mind. Heinlein personally selected each story or essay for inclusion in his collection, which is ordered chronologically, starting with his first sale in 1939 of Lifeline to Astounding. This remarkable collection highlights the development of Heinlein's writing style and his philosophy on life. Throughout his career. More importantly, this collection is a, as close to an autobiography as anything Heinlein wrote during his life. Heinlein was an extremely private person who never wrote much about himself. In this exclu- exclusive collection, he offers forwards to most of his stories and essays and an occasional afterward, giving listeners a rare glimpse into the inner mind of the master. Expanded Universe is a must have for any Heinlein enthusiast and any fan of science fiction. Um, I think it is. If you like Heinlein at all, you have to have uh, have read this book. Yeah, it sounds very comprehensive. Yeah, and you you see that you know because he we he's sort of fun to caric- cartoon caricaturize, but he really is there. There there is a reason he's such a famous science fiction writer. It's because he's he's really a great idea man, and um, he's got all sorts of weird ideas. Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure uh, I I would like to be Heinlein at all, but I like listening to him talk. And um, 
And Bronson Pinchot would be a very good narrator for this. He's, he's able to do all the different kinds of things that would be necessary here. Absolutely. Yeah. Looks good. Uh, the next one I just thought we'd mention, I'm sure we've talked about the Expanse series before mm-hmm. uh, by James S.A. Corey, but book five just came out. It's called Nemesis Games, and uh, it's about 17 hours long, so that seems longer than the others. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of people are excited to continue this world, you know, so I just thought I'd mention it. It's from Hatchet. Mm-hmm. That That's the one they're turning into a TV show, I think, right? Yeah, and if I'm thinking of the right thing, Tom from Sword and Laser said that, um, like for the first time, all the all the worlds that had been introduced before were in the same story. Mm. And I might be thinking of a different series, but I thought that's what the one he was talking about. But anyway, so uh, we're on we're to fantasy. fantasy, yeah, with uh, Simon Vance narrating uh, a Shannara book. Yes, but it's a standalone. Oh. Second standalone Shannara novel, The Darkling Child, is uh, follows the High Druid Blade. Paxin Leah has joined the Druid Order as a paladin, tasked with protecting the Druids with the aid of his magical sword. But Paxin's toughest assignment will come when he must track down a young musician with a newly manifested ma- with newly manifested magic before a rival sorcerer can corrupt the boy. It sounds a bit like it's um it's YA. My Yeah, I never really know uh, for sure with the Terry yeah. Brooks series. I, I I know that when I was a kid uh, mostly it was teens who were reading mm. uh Shannara, but Can we talk about Simon Vance for a little bit? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I sure. just when I, I drove to Kentucky and back this weekend and uh I listened to the first James Bond novel narrated mm. by Simon Vance. Do you uh, know is Tino he? Real? Yeah, yeah. Is he yeah, English so or American? He's he's definitely English. Okay, because I was noticing that there's this one American character, and I was kind of like, mm. <laughs> his English, his his American <laughs> accent is not spot on. Uh, it was well, maybe he was from Texas. The character may have been from Texas, and then it was fine. Um, I mean, you know, everyone in a James Bond novel is a little larger than life anyway, but really, yeah. <laughs> I, I just didn't remember ever hearing him before, but there were two versions of Casino Royale in Audible, and I knew I wanted to try a James Bond novel, and mm-hmm. I was like, which one should I pick? And I knew that everyone seems to love him, so I went with that one. Plus, it was a little bit shorter, strangely. Huh. But he, He's a great narrator. We um, had him on for uh, audiobook. H.G. Uh, uh, Wells horror story. Oh yeah. And and Luke and I talked to him just about being a narrator and how he got started and that's you should check those out. Those are good shows. He does great for James Bond too. You know. Yeah, it would be. So, yeah, he's got he's got the he's got the voice for it. Yeah, and then of course in any James Bond novel there are Russian characters and French characters, and mm-hmm. so there's all these different accents to do. I really enjoyed it, and those mm-hmm. are the type of novels that are great in audio. You know, what else? Yeah, they're also really good. The BBC's been putting out uh, audio dramas of of the books as well. Of the James Um, Bond books? Yeah, uh, there's been about five of them. um, Interesting. And they are they're about an hour and a half long, so they're they're about the length of a movie. But they tend to, uh, I mean, they've got all the action that the movies have as well. But they also tend to try and bring as much as the book back into the story. So it's, it's sort of a hybrid between the, the, the original book and the, the movie. So they take the best parts, you know, so the tweaks that happen in the movie and they put it into the audio drama and then they bring in the detail from the book and, and put it back into the uh, story as well. So I like that, that they, they can somehow manage to get the best of both worlds in. Well, hopefully it's the more recent movie because the first movie version of this is, it's nothing like what the book is at all. There's a, there's a comedic version. There's like three versions of, of, uh, Casino Royale. So which one are you referring to? The one from 1967. Yeah, with five different directors and it's like multiple versions of James Bond and it's after he's old and retired and it's awful. 
No, yeah, nobody watches that one. Yeah, <laughs> There's really a TV bad. version <laughs> as well, and I don't think the more recent movie version is is particularly close. I mean, it has the casino in it, right? But I think well, it looked closer than at least the '67 yeah. one, where the, he was actually young and it was his first real mission and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I just you know, thought, oh, seven minutes, okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got uh. Brenda and Effie Mystery, a new one in. This is a series from Bafflegab in the UK. They are a audio drama producer who have started doing audiobooks as well. And um, this is book four. It's called Brenda Has Riven, Risen from the Grave. And they're quite short. I think they're an hour and a half at most. Hmm. Um And I'll just read the description here. Romance, it seems, has come Effie's way. She's started to date Keith, a later-day elephant man, or latter-day elephant man, who lives in a caravan. Brenda thinks her friend has had had her head turned and counsels against getting carried away. In her experience, the real elephant man didn't have a trunk and large ears. (laughs) Brenda, Brenda, meanwhile, is having a flashback to her adventures in foggy London town during the 1880s. She was caught up in the hunt for a killer known as the London Monster, a murderer who left curious contusions on victims' bodies, wounds that could only have been inflicted by some kinds of prehensile trunk. That's <laughs> 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 pretty funny. All right. I, you know, I, I, I should really look at these. You really um, should. Sound, I, they sound I, like I, they'd just I, be fun. They do. They do sound fun. And they're so short, they're just Jesse length. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I better get to that. Uh, what's this Darwin's Watch? The Science of Discworld Book 3? Yeah. It's the third one to come I know, it's crazy. By Terry Pratchett, Terry Pratchett, Ian Stewart, and Jack Cohen. Read by Michael Fenton Stevens and Stephen Briggs. And it's almost 12 hours long from Random House. So I was trying to puzzle this out. I'm like, how is this a novel? Is this a book of nonfiction? It says something terrible is happening on Round World when Charles Darwin writes Theology of the Species. Science is set back 100 years and the wizards of Discworld must struggle to save the inhabitants on Earth, or that's Round World, from an apocalyptic end. (laughs) So, I don't know. I have a hard time picturing how these go. I'd have to try it. (laughs) And it's it's book three, right? Something strange going on. I've not dipped into... Discworld at all, and yeah. largely that's because there's just too many of them. Um, and also, I'm not a series guy, but I've only read the Tiffany Aching series sub series, which I think mm-hmm. is kind of his YA. Mm-hmm. And those I liked those, but I've never tried the others. Hey. Got a new Naomi Novik book? Yes, oh, and oh. it's not a dragon book. Ah. 17 hours, 44 minutes, a big one. Um, read by Julia M- Emelin. And the description goes, A magnificent departure from the New York best selling, New York Times bestselling Temeraire series, A Fantastic Beauty and the Beast type tale. Angiska <laughs> loves her valley home, her quiet village, the forest and bright shining river. But the corrupted wood stands on the border, full of malevolent power, and its shadow lies over her life. Her people rely on the cold, driven wizard known only as the dragon to keep his powers (laughs) at bay. But he demands a terrible price for his help. One young woman handed over to serve for him for to serve him for ten years, a fate almost as terrible as falling to the wood. So there's Mm. kind of a dragon in there. (laughs) Yeah. And it's it's very much fairy tale set set up, isn't it? Quiet village, the wood. I can see the girl walking through the forest, carrying her basket, going to grandma's house. Yeah. Oh, one left. What's what's the last one? This is the second book in a series, but we've never talked about it, and so I thought I would just mention it. It's the Invasion of the Tearling by Erica Johansson, but it's the sequel to the Queen of the Tearling. Um, it's read by Davina Porter. It's eighteen hours. I went back and looked up. The Queen of the Tearling, because I thought I'd rather read what that's about, because it mm-hmm. kind of introduces the world. Yeah, go for it. If you got uh, that. 
Let's see. Magic, adventure, mystery, and romance combine in this epic debut in which a young princess must reclaim her dead mother's throne, learn to be a ruler, and defeat the Red Queen, a powerful and malevolent sorceress determined to destroy her. On her 19th birthday, Princess Kelsey Raleigh Glynn, raised in exile, sets out on a perilous journey back to the castle of her birth to ascend her rightful throne. Um, I first heard about this because when I went to a librarian conference, I just walked up to random people and asked them what book they'd read recently. Mm-hmm. And um, someone, yeah, she, this one librarian just loved this book. And then since then, I keep running into people who say that. Like, I went to our local bookstore, and it was one of the staff recommendations. And uh, hmm. just kind of interesting, and I had never come across it in, like, in never normal sources. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's funny because I've recently read, oh, The Goblin Emperor, which kind of has the same basic storyline. Right. I, I, I think we've talked about that one at one time. Yeah, and so it was interesting that they kind of had parallel stories. So anyway, the one that just came out is the invasion of the Tyrlene. And so it's basically someone invades the kingdom and this new queen has to figure out what to do. But I'm thinking about trying these. Someone actually said that if you were really into Harry Potter, there's something about Mm. some similarities there between, you know, I guess the coming of age within a fantasy world. And um, there must be some use of magic in there too then. I don't usually read fantasy, but for some reason I thought maybe I would try these. Well, librarians recommend, you know. I know. How can you resist? (laughs) This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.